But I was a little bit suicidal that day. I was actually praying to God, take me home. I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be here. I don't want to deal with these people. I don't want to deal with my job. I don't want to deal with all the challenges of being a, a mom and a wife. And, and I can't do this anymore. Welcome to Stories of Hope in Hard Times, the show that explores how people endure and even thrive in difficult times, all with God's help. I'm your host, Tamara K. Anderson. Join me on a journey to find inspiring stories of hope and wisdom learned in life's hardest moments. My guest today is a best-selling multi-genre author who uses real social issues to incorporate valuable lessons into fictional stories. As an author and publisher, she's mentored other authors using techniques she's developed over 30-plus books and publications to springboard their own successful careers. Her stories include snarky, flawed characters and romantic twists and turns. She believes we can change the world one story at a time. I am pleased to present Julie L. Spencer. Julie, are you ready to share your story of hope? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Oh, Appreciate this it. is this is going to be fun. And I love that your tagline is changing the world one story at a time, because that's what we're doing here on this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. So before we dive into your story, I thought we'd break the ice with a little bit of a lesser known <laughs> fact about you. And okay. one of the interesting things about you is that you love rock and roll music. <laughs> yes. There you go. Tell me, tell me why and and how how come that is. <laughs> um, well, it's funny because in my car, I almost always listen to Christian music, the Lamb yeah. of God. I don't know if you've ever heard the music. I don't know if it's a music that's got it's got orchestral music and and speaking, and it's got um, these beautiful songs. And I have been listening to it every single day in my car for like three years because I performed in it twice at the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Wow. And yeah, it was so wonderful to be a part of this, um, like yes. 20 different denominations all coming together for this beautiful performance. And, and the music is just incredible. So I listened to that in my car, but when I am writing often, I am listening to rock music because some of the books that I write actually are about rock stars. <laughs> I have well, there whole, you go. <laughs> I have a whole series called my rock star redemption series. So it is a, a, a guy um, who's a child prodigy. So the book, the book series starts out literally when he's eight years old and identified as a child prodigy. And then like the next scene, he's in high school and he kind of recruits these other guys who are in his band class and they start this little rock band and he figures it out pretty quickly that he's the only Christian in his group. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these challenges throughout the story with, you know, drugs and alcohol and girls. And, and he's trying really hard to stay true to his values and also not be judgmental against his buddies, but also be a good example to them. And the story goes through the time when they're like mid to late twenties. So it's a long series. It's like five or six books. They keep expanding. There's more and more books. Every <laughs> once in a while, I'm like, oh, I need to write another Buxton Peak book. So um, 
but the series is called Rockstar Redemption Series. And I, I listened to a lot of music trying to figure out what does my fictional rock band actually sound like? Mm. And so I just started listening to all these bands and I found that I really love like guitar solos and drum solos. So I have a lot of music that I have like a playlist of instrumentals, Mm. but they're all these rock bands, uh, Guns N' Roses in particular, Bon Jovi. (laughs) There's this um, Australian. The the good old ones, right? (laughs) There you go. So so you have quite a variety in the music Mm -hmm. that you listen to, which is great. (laughs) Well, kind of, except that it's, it's really just those those two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, let's dive into your story. Take okay. us back to your young adulthood when you were diagnosed with, were you diagnosed with bipolar disorder back then? Or when did that? Yeah, I actually wasn't officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder until I was in my mid to late twenties. Oh, wow. And, and I kind so of- So you were struggling with symptoms oh. of it, but you didn't know what it was. I had no idea that that was what it was. I just thought I was a, a troubled teen. Um, my parents probably had no idea what to do with me. I started drinking at a very young age, which is probably why I'm so adamant about encouraging you know, teenagers to not drink alcohol because I know what it did to my life. Mm -hmm. And I know that the only reason that I'm here still is because God must have a plan for me and I better figure out what it is and do that, do the things that he wants me to do. Because there, there were times when I was young that I remember like driving through downtown Flint plastered drunk at three in the morning Mm. and running red lights and laughing like with my friends and we were goofing off and just being silly and stupid and how did we not die yeah I mean I don't God had to have a plan for me to actually pull me out of those things yeah and I I started drinking when I was in junior high and my parents were were drinkers and so we kind of had this joke amongst us kids us teenagers that as long as we you know replaced the the beer cans into the 24 pack of beer mm-hmm. as long as they could count at the end that there were still 24 cans at the end they didn't notice if we took one and and the big bottle of whiskey that sat there if you took a little bit out of it they, they weren't going to ever notice that so it was very easy in my life to to get my hands on alcohol whereas now I don't have any in my house right um, and and I hope I never have you know, I've told my daughter when she turns 21, don't you ever show up at my house with alcohol <laughs> in your system. I'll hand you your purse and you can leave your car keys because it's our car and go find somebody else to sleep on your couch tonight because you're not living at my house ever again if you have alcohol in your system. Wow. Tough love, maybe, but I know what I dealt with when I was a kid and I don't ever want to deal with that as an adult. If, if somebody else is drinking at their house, I can leave. If somebody brings alcohol into my house, I can't leave. This is my home. Mm-hmm. And, and this is my little safe shelter from the world. So that's I cool. just don't ever want to deal with it again. So do you feel like you were experiencing symptoms back then of bipolar issues that maybe you were trying to self-medicate with the alcohol or what describe how you were feeling at that point in your life. Um, Well, the best way that you can describe bipolar is um, feeling like 
you have bugs crawling around underneath your skin and you can't get them out <laughs> you can't do anything to it's like it's like itching an, a rash but the rash is on the inside so no matter what you do to the itch it's not going to alleviate it mm -hmm. so if there's something like an external something like alcohol or marijuana and, and a lot of people with bipolar also um, turn to um, promiscuity um, that that's it's it's basically all of it is just self-medicating because mm -hmm. you would do anything to make that feeling go away. And a lot of times it's an escape. You just want to escape this world that you're in and you don't know why. So mm -hmm. when my, my youngest daughter started showing signs of bipolar at a very young age, it was early teens, we immediately jumped into action and got her help because mm -hmm. we know what I, she had the benefit of having a mother who knew what it was like at that age. Yes, you know, we, we didn't fix all our problems. And actually the medications, some of them are not even available until after you turn 18. And then the miracle medication that I'm on, she got a severe reaction to it and wound up in the emergency room. So oh. we still haven't figured out, uh, you know, her medication um, yet, but she's in, you know, counseling and trauma therapy and, you know, we just do the best we can. Yeah. But, but yes, I'm sure that I was... I had no idea what it was. My mom would never have thought that it was bipolar disorder. She didn't know anything about that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was experiencing all these weird things that people just thought I was rebellious teenager. So were you having the wild mood swings from super high to super low or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I remember times in my life where I wanted to, you know, I was not fully suicidal, but definitely was like, I've got to get out of this life. I, I'm so depressed. And then other times where I was just this elated, you know, like I said, driving down Flint, Michigan. That, that kind of gives us a picture of where you were coming from. Mm -hmm. And so you went from that to getting married and that didn't turn out as well as you had hoped. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's interesting because I, <laughs> I was such a smart little kid that I actually got accepted to University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, which is really prestigious university. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wasn't stupid, but I was doing a lot of stupid things. Right. And um, my ex-husband actually, I'm pretty sure he got me pregnant on purpose to keep me from going away to college. So mm. I graduated high school pregnant. I was one of two girls in my high school who were pregnant and nobody knew or, or maybe some people did and I was just stick my head in the sand thinking people didn't know. I was already living with my ex-husband at that time um, as, a, as a senior in high school and we, we did get pregnant and of course I kept the baby and she's my incredible 28 year old now who is like having her first baby she's pregnant her and her husband are gonna make us grandkids grandparents in a couple of months here so um so yeah so she's an incredible person in my life and I think she saved my life getting pregnant for Virginia saved my life because I couldn't drink alcohol while I was pregnant so I had to stop, but my ex-husband was an alcoholic, very drunk almost every day. And again, this is one of those reasons why I don't ever want alcohol in my home because I lived with a drunk for four years mm. and 
I finally, finally, my, my mom kind of rescued me. She, we were kind of talking in code language, you know, let's get together on Friday for lunch and okay. And then I knew I couldn't leave on Friday because of something he was doing. So I called her and said, let's get together on Saturday instead. And she was like, okay, you want me to come get you on Saturday? Yes, yes, come come on Saturday. So we were talking mm-hmm. in code and, and she rescued me. He was very abusive. Um, he was abusive to me and to my daughter. And um, it was just not a good situation. I needed to get out of it, but I didn't feel like I had any way out of that situation until my mommy, <laughs> thank you, mommy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my mom and I haven't always gotten along perfectly, but she rescued me that day. And I went and lived with her for a couple of months before I ended up um, going to Central Michigan University. No idea why I went to Central, but I'm really glad I did because I met my my forever husband. I don't call him my second husband. (laughs) (laughs) He's my forever husband. And while we were both attending Central Michigan University and I met him at church, (laughs) what better place to meet your husband? There you go. So, yeah. So what... Let me ask you this, because a lot of people are stuck in situations where they they have an abusive partner um, and sometimes they feel they just can't escape. What were some of the things that helped you realize I need to get out and and have hope that you could change and not go back to the situation? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times uh, women go back to their oh, abusive mm-hmm. partner. Uh, when he threw a ladder at me, like one of those little step ladders, and I had my daughter in my arms at the time. That was oh. the day. That was the catalyst that made me say, I, I can't stay here any longer. And I, I, everything we owned was in his parents' name. So I couldn't like take anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I took the clothes, the clothes we owned, my daughter and my clothes and her little like toddler bed. She was three, three and a half at the time that I left. That's the stuff I took and we fled. (laughs) So he did try to get us back. Like that summer, um, I worked at a, um, at a bar, (laughs) oddly enough, (laughs) (laughs) it was a restaurant, it was a restaurant bar and I was a good waitress and I made a lot of money, which, which was a great way to find enough money to to live on my own but that summer I lived with my parents um so it's kind of like with if you've got an abusive situation that you need to get out of you've got to have a place to go whether that's a homeless shelter or um you know an apartment somewhere where you can get out Uh, I didn't have a job I didn't have a car I didn't have anything Mm. so my mom and dad um came and rescued me And we lived, my daughter and I lived with them and we lived far enough away that he couldn't just come to drag me back. Although he tried uh, by phone, he begged me over and over again, saying he loved me and, you know, he would change, he would stop drinking, everything was going to be great. Um, And I, I stuck it out. I said no enough times that finally he stopped asking. Um, But he did at one point threaten me. And he said that if I either got married or lived with another man, he would kill me. And he said he would kill us both. 
Now, wow. he, total empty threats because he didn't have he didn't have a weapon. But I, I I was strong enough by the time I was ready to marry my forever husband that when I got engaged to him, I actually called my ex husband up and I said, "So are you going to kill us?" And he was like, "What are you talking about?" And I said, "Well, you threatened." that you were going to kill us if I got married or lived with a guy that you were going to kill us. And he was like, well, I was just joking. Like, well, it certainly didn't sound like a joke at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. And I did cry a little bit when he died. Um, it was about two years ago. Now I did cry a little bit. He was the father of my child. Right. So ultimately it was the mama bear protective instinct in you to protect your daughter that helps you get the courage to leave. And I was just going to throw this in that there is a national domestic violence hotline that you can call or you can call for someone you're concerned about. Mm -hmm. And it's 1-800-799-SAFE or the safe is 7233. So if you or someone you know is really struggling and needs to get out of a bad situation, there are national domestic violence hotlines here in the United States that you can call and get the help you need. They can get you to battered women's shelter, or sometimes there's abuse going the other way where men are being physically abused by their wives. And so you can call that same number and get the help that you need. So it's good to know. I, I don't know that the help was as predominant, you know, so many years ago, 20, 30 years years ago, but it's a blessing that we have those kind of resources now for people who find themselves in these kinds of situations, you know? Yeah. This is not easy to get out, but, and also there's the legal aspect that we fought for years um, in the courts to keep her safe. My, my daughter, there was no proof of the abuse. Mm. And so it was his word against mine. And she was too young to tell anybody, although she did tell some things in a um, counseling session that the counselor did like testify on our behalf that something happened in the presence of her father. Either he did it or he knew about it. So it was when you're a a three-year-old that can't fully vocalize what you saw and and heard and did, um, it's it's really hard to prove abuse. So yeah. there's the legal aspects of, of needing to get out of this situation, but realizing that your child might be going right back into the situation. Mm. Um, so getting protective services involved immediately, um, you know, that as a as a battered woman or 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 mm. man that's that's needing to get you and your child out of situation or children in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um realize that there are a lot of legal aspects too and so it's it's almost best not to just leave but to call those lines those those hotlines and get help from from the start yeah that makes sense Mm -hmm. that makes sense you're not weak by asking for help you are being smart by asking for help because you're getting a foundation in place as you leave now if you're in a dangerous situation right this second and, and somebody's hurting you right the second, get in the car and leave, find a way to get out, maybe go straight to a police station and say, I need help right now. Yeah. You know, don't stay in a situation where you're, where you're being hurt or injured right now. Get out. Yeah. So. I, I love that. And, and I think it's a great resource for people to know about so that they can 
you know, that I'm not just leaving and I have nowhere to go. There are yeah. people and plans in place. If your family isn't supportive, then there are organizations there that can help you mm -hmm. uh, yeah. make that transition yeah. away and out of, uh, of, of a very dangerous situation. So absolutely. Yep. Oh my goodness. Wow. Well, this is fantastic. I didn't know that we'd be diving into that, but tell me a little bit more about um, getting your official bipolar diagnosis. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we'll have more lessons, tips, and things you can apply to your life. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Tamara K. Anderson, and I want to share something special with you. When our son Nathan was diagnosed with autism, I felt like the life we had expected for him was ripped away and with it, my own heart shattered as well. It's very common for families to feel anger, pain, confusion, and anxiety when a child is diagnosed. This is where my book, Normal For Me, comes into play. It shares my story of learning to replace my pain with acceptance, peace, joy, and hope. Normal for Me has helped change many lives and I'd like to give this book to as many families as possible. We put together something I think is really special. My friends and listeners can order copies of my book at a significantly discounted price and we will send them to families who have just had a child diagnosed with autism or another special needs diagnosis. We will put your name inside the cover so they will know someone out there loves them and wants to help. I will also sign each copy. You can order as little as one or as many as hundreds to be shared with others. So go to my website, TamaraKAnderson.com and visit the store section for more information and to place your order. You can bless the lives of many families by sending them hope, love, and peace. Check it out today at TamaraKAnderson.com and help me spread hope to the world. Tell me a little bit more about um, getting your official bipolar diagnosis um, and how, uh, how God played into maybe the beginning of healing. I know it wasn't a complete healing, but just mm -hmm. guidance. It's a, it's a constant healing. In fact, I was in the hospital this summer like just a, just in July. Um, I, I'm, I'm not out of the water. <laughs> and I think that's important to remember with a lot of illnesses. Mm -hmm. It's not your lack of faith. That's not healing you. You can pray every single day for the rest of your life. If there's some type of illness or disability or something that your body is meant to have while on this earth, and that's part of God's plan for you, realize that it's not lack of faith that's keeping you from being healed. It's that this is just not the right time for you to be healed. You'll have a perfect body once you get to heaven. There you go. <laughs> but this is, this is something on earth. So what happened was I was definitely struggling, but I had no idea why. Again, I, I did not know that I was bipolar. And I actually was in a, a college class. I, I was a graduate assistant, so I had to kind of like help teach college classes while I was in my graduate program, and I was standing there administering a test in a chemistry classroom. I mean, like not classroom. It was like a big lecture hall, and I was basically just walking around making sure kids didn't cheat, and I was looking at this wall that had like huge boxes, the, the periodic table of contents, mm -hmm. so 
So those those elements had a each of them had a box about that big and they were colored and beautiful and and I had been taking some lithium from like an alternative doctor from a chiropractor who had not prescribed but recommended this nutritional supplement that was basically lithium. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the LI on the chart and I was like, oh, I take lithium. And I didn't know what for because he wasn't diagnosing me that mm-hmm. the chiropractor doesn't diagnose medical issues. And on this little thing, it said used to treat bipolar disorder, lithium. Mm. I'm like, what? And I went home to my husband and I said, is that what doctor thinks I have bipolar disorder? And he was like, uh, extreme highs and extreme lows. Yeah. That pretty much describes you. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, that's different. That's not something I realized. And I put that in the back of my, my mind. Um, again, I was in graduate school. That was the last thing on my mind was getting treatment for something that I didn't know anything about. Um, so I finished my degree, got my, got my master's degree, went about my life and everything was just not falling into place. You know, I couldn't find the right job. I wasn't sure if I really should have a job. My kids were young, things were just weird in my life and everything was falling apart. And I found myself very depressed. I had this perfect little life. I had a husband who loved me four bedroom, two bath house in a beautiful neighborhood with a picket fence going around. We <laughs> this perfect little world. How was I depressed? Why was I depressed? And that was when I finally went to a psychiatrist because I did a lot of research and I realized that there was probably, I probably needed to get on medication. And of course I didn't know which one the lithium I was taking was just a nutritional supplement and it wasn't like a strong enough dose to actually be considered a, um, you know, a medical dose. I went to a psychiatrist because I was at the point where I was so depressed that I was suicidal and knew that if I didn't get help, I might do something drastic. And and I was thinking about like going to the emergency room and and admitting myself Mm. for help. So I said, well, this is the, this is the alternative is to get into a psychiatrist right now. And I did. And of course, they officially did diagnose me with bipolar and they got me into counseling. And when they told me they were going to need to put me on medication, I did start crying because I've heard that bipolar, once you're on bipolar medication, you're pretty much on it for the rest of your life. Mm. And I didn't want that, but it is a progressive illness. And so they have had to up my dose over and over and over to the point where I'm now at the maximum dose that I'm allowed to take of that medication. It's called Lamictal. And it, it works for some people and doesn't work for others. So it's not something that you can just self-diagnose and decide that that's the medicine you need. It's not for everybody, but it was definitely for me. And it changed my life. Getting on this medication, I can function in society now. I can hold down a job. In fact, I, I held down a, a very stressful job for almost 11 years. I was a public administrator at a, at a conservation district. And so be, to be able to do that was I, I could not have, I, I don't know how I would have functioned. I, I wouldn't have been able to hold down this type of job, excuse mm-hmm. me, um, if I had not gotten on medication years ago. Um, but then the stress, I had had so much stress from my job. Um, I had some environmentalists that were basically like 
smearing my name in the paper. I got threatening emails from several um, professors at a local college who did not like the results of the water quality studies that I was publishing. Um, and they were important scientific documents that they were trying to prove that I was wrong. <laughs> and, and so when your name is, is smeared in the paper and, and the environmentalists are basically, basically they, they prevented us from getting funding from our county, like zero, we went down to zero. So if, you're, if your department now has zero dollars and you're trying to figure out how you're gonna make payroll, there's no way to do that. So that was the kind of stress that I had on my shoulders. And, and I got a, I was, I was scheduled to do a presentation. It was a Tuesday evening in July. The lady who was from, um, she was a professor at Michigan State University who was in charge of this. She sent me an email, um, well, she sent all of us, all the presenters an email saying, here's the list of people who are going to be in attendance tonight. So you can kind of see if there's anybody that you already know that you might be able to connect with. And I looked at that email and I looked at the list and several of the people on that list were some of those environmentalists who I call them the people with the pitchforks. <laughs> they were mad at me and the, the information I was going to be presenting on this water quality study was exactly what they were mad at me about. So they were going to be sitting in the audience looking at and glaring at me. And I just lost it. I, I burst into tears and I'm like, I can't do this. And I, I just kept crying and crying. And a little while later, my husband found me on the floor unresponsive. And, oh and it, it was obviously that trigger, <laughs> but it was yeah. also the stress that built up and built up and built up. And I wound up on the floor. This is getting real vulnerable here. But I was a little bit suicidal that day. I was actually praying to God take me home. I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be here. I don't want to deal with these people. I don't want to deal with my job. I don't want to deal with all the challenges of being a, a mom and a wife. And, and I can't do this anymore. Take me home. I'm done. And, and God didn't answer me. <laughs> Instead, he sent um, my husband and an ambulance and police and, and they got me into the hospital. And I was unresponsive for about four hours and wow. when I finally woke up, one of the first things my husband said to me was, how are you feeling? And I said, sad. And he said, why are you sad? And he said, and I, I answered him, alive. So basically, this is like my first two words out of my mouth was that I was sad. And the reason I was sad was because I was alive. Hmm. And, and so I didn't take anything. I didn't try to kill myself. I was just seriously depressed mm -hmm. and it was all stress related and mm -hmm. again i have this wonderful perfect life there's no reason for me to be depressed or suicidal well you know but... and my daughter who's a counselor told me that you shouldn't think that way you're you're allowed to feel depressed it doesn't mm -hmm. matter how perfect so and so your life is you know quote unquote perfect there's no perfect mm -hmm. and and just because your body is feeling depressed validate that it's okay for you to feel depressed and it's okay to get help they put me on an anti-anxiety in addition to the to lamictal and and i resigned from my job a job that i loved mm. <laughs> and but, i was good at but i think i think you've hit on some really good points there that sometimes when we're praying for a certain thing 
that God doesn't always answer the way we think he should answer the way we want him to answer. Sometimes he sends earthly angels to help us find the right solution for us and our physical struggles. Uh, Sometimes it may include a trip to the hospital and that we need to bust the stigma that it's, it's okay to get the help that you need right? Yes, that, yes. and sometimes that may include quitting your job and, and, but yeah, you're taking care of you and yes. that's going to look different for all of us and we shouldn't judge. Right. Yes, Correct. And actually I was, I was like really proud of Simone Biles at the Olympics because she took herself out of a situation that she was feeling a lot of pressure and stress and, and her mental health was not perfect. Well, none of us are perfect, but right. she knew that she needed to get out of that situation. And at the Olympics on live television, she stepped away from something that was super stressful. And I was like, yes, she brought mm-hmm. mental health into the international stage in, in the light of day, not shying away from it. She was saying my mental health is important. My health in general is important. I don't want to hurt myself on an apparatus because my mental health is out of whack. Mm -hmm. She brought that to light. And oh, I was just, she's my hero. Absolute hero. No, that's- If I ever have a chance to say thank you to her, Simone Biles, if you ever have a chance to hear this message. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No, I think that's fantastic. And, And I think it's good that more and more people are speaking up about the importance of taking care of mental health issues. Yes whatever they may be, um, that for, for many, many years and decades and centuries, mental health was just pushed into the background and oh, yeah. people were, uh, you know, put into, um, places where they, you know, they were hospitalized basically for the rest of their lives because they didn't know what to do with them. And, yeah. and I think it's so wonderful now that we have medications that will help people live normal as normal lives as they can. <laughs> And function in society, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think the more we talk about it, the less, the more we break the stigma and we say, okay, some people struggle with this and they have worth, they're children of God, and we need to love them and help them live the highest quality life that they possibly can. So I think I still, there's still quite a bit of stigma around it. And I think that I'm still um, kind of rejected in society because of my bipolar, because people think that I'm unstable. And so I, I've, I've kind of like lost friends and partnerships of people who are kind of afraid of dealing with me. And it's interesting because there was this guy who used to come to our church and he's moved now to a different area. So I don't see him anymore. Um, he had bipolar disorder and he was always trying to talk to me because he was like so excited to have somebody else in his life that knew what he was going through. But I found myself backing away from him because I was like, I can't deal with his like spastic nature. It was too much for me. So if, if I'm spastic and other people are having to deal with me being spastic, then I kind of understand if they're pulling back from me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm able to take my emotions out of the, you know, not to not get offended. It's mm-hmm. so easy to get offended. Yeah. When somebody doesn't want you as part of their little circle of friends, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, or, or in a, 
a professional situation. It's okay for me to be offended, but I think that it, it shows a lot of strength for me to be able to say, okay, I'm not going to be offended because I recognize that they're trying to protect them just like I'm trying to protect me. Mm. Um, and just so it's okay, maybe that I kind of lock myself in my little room. <laughs> I'm actually kind of thankful for Zoom and, and, and for working remotely and being able to have my little cocoon. And people think of me as very outgoing and, and extroverted because I'm very bubbly and peppy and, and able to reach out to other people and, and be friendly. But really, I have like all the classic signs of being an introvert partly because when I'm in those external situations, I have a tendency to kind of, you know, back away, be a little bit more closed off. And then when I am done with that situation, I need time to decompress and, and lock mm. myself in my little room, be in a little cocoon. And that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. And it's good that you recognize what you need to decompress. I think we all hit uh, high stress points in our lives and recognizing, okay, I'm feeling stressed out. And then finding things that you can do to decompress is super, super important. So you brought up some amazing, amazing points. If you, if part of your decompression is sitting in a room by yourself, great. If it's reading, you know, escape into a book, uh, try oh, to stay away, <laughs> try to stay away from the more dangerous ways of escaping what we discussed earlier exactly. in the podcast about alcohol and drugs and stuff like that, because those don't help yes. you in the long run. Yes. So find <laughs> healthy ways to de-stress and be able to manage your stress and be wise about it. Get, get professional help if you need mm -hmm. it, you know, and, and my, my husband is kind of freaked out by the fact that he found me unresponsive. And so he is like way more cognizant of what's going on in my life. And one of the things that we have found is that if he can just wrap me in his arms, that that really helps me. And it's not like all the time. It's not like I have to use him as a crutch, but there's certain times when I'm feeling really stressed that I'll just say, just hold me for a couple of minutes. And that helps me. No, that's really good. And I remember researching a couple of years ago about hugs. And when, when people hug you, your body actually releases a chemical called oxytocin. And yeah, well, it is. It okay. gives you it gives you a natural high. And so that mm -hmm. feeling of being hugged. So that that is actually a really great coping mechanism because your body starts producing mm -hmm. something to help you feel better when somebody hugs you. So mm -hmm. there you go. There's your tip for the day. <laughs> Give a hug or get a hug if you need one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, this has been so fun. And I'm glad that we've been able to tackle some of these uh, critically important issues to talk about. What Bible verse have you found that's been meaningful to you throughout your struggles, Julie? Okay, Job 19.23, and I think I can quote it. And this is a really silly one. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. Because, and I think at the time that in, in Job, he's, he's kind of a little bit chastising himself because he's saying, you know, gosh, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be upset by what I don't have. I should be thankful for what I do. But I think that we kind of all have that feeling of, I wish that my voice could be heard, that, that other people could, could hear me and see me and, and know me. Um, but of course it has to do with the writer in me as a novelist, as, a, as mm -hmm. an author, 
oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book so I can actually like hold the book in my hand and, and read it and have somebody else read it. And, and yeah, and that's, that's me being heard is to have somebody else read my words. I would almost rather give my books away just so that somebody could read them than to sell them. It's not about the money. It's about somebody hearing my words. Yeah. That's part of what that scripture does for me. Well, and I think it kind of goes back to what, what we were talking about your, your goal being originally is that we can change the world one story at a time. And, and I love your story. I love your story. And I can see why you incorporate some of these important issues and values into your books. Now, Julie, there are going to be people out there who are going to say, oh, I love Julie. I love her story. I want to read her books. Tell us where we can find you online and where we can get your books. Okay. So my author um, website is authorjuliespencer.com. So all one word, authorjuliespencer.com. But my actual pen name, like on Amazon, if you want to just buy my books, I put my middle initial in there. So it's L. So it's Julie L. Spencer. So that's why I kind of always go by my, my pen name is always Julie L. Spencer. And I spend a lot of time on Facebook, actually. And that's where you can reach me is on, on Facebook and at authorjuliespencer.com and, and Amazon as the pen name Julie L. Spencer. Wonderful. Well, thank you, you so much for sharing your amazing story of hope, for not being ashamed to tackle topics that are hard, topics like mental health, alcohol, um, abuse, and getting <laughs> out of it. I mean, these are stories mm -hmm. that, that need to be told. They need to be shared because there are so many people struggling with them out there. And so thank you for being willing to share your story of hope with us today. You're welcome. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, subscribe so you can get your weekly dose of powerful stories of hope. I know there are many of you out there who are going through a hard time, and I hope you found useful things that you can apply to your own life in today's podcast. If you would like to access the show notes of today's show, please visit my website, storiesofhopepodcast.com. There you will find a summary of today's show, the transcript, and one of my favorite takeaways. You know, if someone kept coming to mind during today's episode, perhaps that means that you should share this episode with them. Maybe there was a story shared or a quote or a scripture verse that they really, really need to hear. So go ahead and share this podcast. May God bless you, especially if you are struggling with hope to carry on and with the strength to keep going when things get tough. Remember to walk with Christ and he will help you bear the burden. And above all else, remember God loves you.